What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the City Image Podcast. You know who I am. I am Brian, the Theological Giant, and I'm super excited about the episode that we have lined up for you today. But before we get into that, um, I want to introduce my co-host, and we have a very special guest a heavy hey, hitter, hey, hey. somebody who has already been on the podcast a few times, but is back again. But you know, I'll let him introduce himself. But let me let me get to my my co-host who is with me on this journey for this episode. What's up? What's up? It's Varlene the Wild Thornberry, and y'all gonna see why in this episode for real. <laughs> <laughs> Varlene, good to see you. Hope you're doing well. But, you know, we do have that special guest, my brother. <laughs> oh, man, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much, uh, City Image, for bringing me in. This is Rasul Berry, uh, teaching pastor at The Bridge, uh, as well as uh, host. I'm also, I have a podcast now. Yes, he uh, does, y'all, yeah. and it's fire. A- 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 <laughs> yeah, it out. called Where You're From. And he, he was traveling all over the world, too. That's true. That's <laughs> Yo, true. Tell, tell, tell him about everything, Russell. Yeah, tell, tell sure, him. sure. So, um, man, I had the opportunity to partner with uh, the ministry called Our Daily Bread. Y'all probably may remember the little yes, booklets uh, at church, the, the devotionals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so they do a lot more than just um, devotional content. They also create uh, incredible video content. And so last year, back when this was possible, I actually traveled to five continents in five months um, shooting a documentary called uh, In Pursuit of Jesus, where Fantastic. it was essentially me <clears throat> me interacting with uh, believers and non-believers from all over the world, trying to understand how could I see Jesus differently through the lens of a Singaporean, a South African, a mm. Swedish person, um, an Israeli, and, uh, and and see how that journey would impact me. And so we have uh, seven episodes. You can check it out in PursuitOfJesus.net. It was an incredible journey. Yep. Yes, yes, yes. And your podcast? Where yes. From? Yeah, the podcast, Where You're From. So really kind of followed up from the journey. Um, of In Pursuit of Jesus in that I just didn't get enough of learning people's stories and seeing how what they do. If you ever heard the podcast, uh, How I Built This, it kind of looks at uh, people who are known for doing something and it goes back into their life to see what their life journey was that brought them to that point. So you don't just get like the nuts and bolts of the specific thing, but you get to hear the person and how the person's heart and soul and life is into is built into the thing that we know them for. And so uh, season one, we got to talk to some incredible people like um, yeah. Dr. Eric Mason, uh, my friend Kristen Betts, uh, Newton on there. Kimini Uwan from Truth Table uh, and uh, 
Dr. Christina Edmondson from Truth Table mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, we just got to chop it up with some few folks. We're right now recording uh, season two, and oh man, we got okay. Some... So is this gonna be a continual like seasons like more and more? I think so. I think so. That's yeah, good stuff, bro. Yep. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. So yes, you know Russell um, is teaching pastor at, uh, at Bridge. That's how I know him. He is my pastor. Just a great dude. You know, we go way back. Um, and for those who you don't know, he's this is you know I think we we did like one joint on like male rompers and Hebrew Israelites and then two episodes on uh black Panther. So he's back again for his fourth. Um, and you know, he is Rasul the messenger because his name in Arabic is actually like the messenger. That's right. <laughs> so, you got it. Uh, so it's, it's a beautiful thing, man. Great to have you back. So we're going to be talking about critical race theory. And the reason why we have Rasul on the episode is because he's actually spent a lot of time researching, reading about it. He's written an article. Uh, the name of the article is uh, Critical Grace Theory, <laughs> The Promise and Perils of CRT. You can read that on um, his blog at medium.com. Uh, and so uh, he's spent some time just really uh, engaging with this uh theory in depth and so and, and and you know he actually had a chance to actually debate the theory on the un- unbelievable uh radio show which is one of the premier apologetics uh radio programs they bring on uh, people who do apologetics and just various different uh fields to just debate very important topics and so that episode just recently came out you want to look up the unbelievable um is it a podcast or radio show or it's both it's a podcast and it's also on youtube so if you just put in unbelievable question mark okay. uh it'll show up in youtube or on your uh podcast service yeah so he had a great debate very informative debate i think we'll definitely be referring to it in the podcast so yeah we just want to continue that conversation because um, for those of you who, who may not know critical race theory is uh, kind of a really hot topic right now in the church especially when you want to have conversations about justice especially in light of a lot of the uh, issues of racial uh, inequality police brutality that we have seen this year and in recent years um, I think whenever black christians want to speak on issues of justice um a lot of uh critique that we receive is that we've kind of fallen into this belief that is critical race theory and that uh that theory is oftentimes uh heavily critiqued by uh white evangelicals but not just necessarily white evangelicals but evangelicals in general as being unchristian and so we want to explore that theory you know is it helpful for us is it not helpful um is it even worth talking about um so we just brought russell uh, on to kind of have that discussion because i think it's going to help us as we you know continue to want to do the work of justice to continue to have conversations um with other christians and non-christians about justice so i'm excited for that i think it's going to be a great episode so keep it locked you are listening to the city image podcast we will be right back what is up family it's brian the theological giant I just want to thank all of you for listening to the City Image Podcast. Your continued support gives us the ability to produce faith-based content that is relevant to the urban context. If you haven't already, subscribe to City Image so that you won't miss any of our episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast on every major platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing our podcast 
helps us grow our audience. Also, if you've been blessed by our work, please consider sharing our content with friends and on social media. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The City Image and make sure to like the City Image Facebook page as well. Lastly, feel free to email any feedback, thoughts, and comments on any of our episodes at cityimagepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and enjoy the episode. All right, all right. Welcome back to the City Image Podcast. I'm glad you guys are sticking with us. So, Rasul, just wanted to just start it off. I mean, because not everybody probably has heard about critical race theory. Not everybody has um, had time to research it and understand it to the level you have. So, uh, as best as you understand it, man, like what what is critical race theory? What is that? Well, I think that's a important question. That's actually the million dollar question in this right. uh, whole scenario, because it's one of those things in which the very definition itself is contested. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's contested, uh, especially in Christian spaces, because there are uh, a lot of the opponents or critics of the heightened uh, emphasis on j- social justice and on racial justice or racism, a lot of the critics uh, create a pretty hyper-focused and I would say extreme part of critical race theory. That is a aspect that some scholars hold to in that how they define it, but they make that the uh, the bar for everyone who uh, talks about race, everyone who talks about social justice, any of those things in a way that misrepresents the, um, the fluid, the fluidity of the term. But before we get to the term, it might be helpful to get a little bit of backdrop of the history of how kind of we got here because um, Derek Bell um, is widely considered by most critical race theorists as the kind of father of the founder of the of of the of that theory. Uh, Derek Bell was a um, legal professor uh, and a um, NAACP uh, assistant counsel for the NAACP Defense Fund. So essentially, he was very active in the civil rights movement and noticed that by the time he became the first black tenured uh, professor at Harvard Law, uh, that in the 70s, he began to study the issue of desegregation. And if you know anything about history, you know that, especially in the history of desegregation and busing, that the issue of busing in Boston became a very violent and uh, bloody resistance to it, right? Like a white People did not want their children to go to integrated schools. And I mean, it was it got ugly up there. But in the meantime, families began to as as Derek Bell began to talk to families, he noticed that a lot of the families decided they didn't want their black children to integrate because of the danger that they were experiencing. And he started to think about why is it that years after the civil rights act passed in 1964 the fair housing act and you know uh the voting rights act in the 60s why is it that we're not seeing change and he began to theorize about this 
out of the context of the work that he was doing. This is very important because I uh, spent some time and I talk about this in the essay that I wrote, Critical Grace Theory, that uh, a friend of mine actually was the last um, legal fellow, like basically like a, a, a law student who was a fellow, was the last one that doc, Dr. Derek Bell worked with. Um, and he began to talk about how he was not very a high-minded philosophical person. He was smart, but his emphasis was on the practical side of why are things happening on the ground that are, are happening. So as a result of what his experiences were in uh, Boston and desegregation and just the challenges that were there, because you got to remember, for those who were really involved in the civil rights movement, they thought, okay, these acts passed, these laws passed, this is going to bring about racial equality. And when they saw that it wasn't, they started to realize that they had maybe missed some things and they began to reevaluate. In that process of reevaluation, there became six aspects of critical race theory. And I'm getting this from uh, the book, uh, Introduction to Critical Race Theory, written by uh, Richard Delgado and, and Gene Stefanczyk, who are considered two of the also leading uh, scholars. And again, this all started in the legal studies framework. And in the book, Intro to Critical Race Theory, they identify six main aspects uh, that they say are foundational or tenets of critical race theory. The first is that racism is ordinary, not aberrational. Now, this was a significant tra uh, transformation in thinking because up until that point, Derek Bell and others in the NAACP, they would look for laws that they thought, OK, this is a racist law. This is a racist law and then try to undermine or change that law. And they thought, OK, once those laws were changed and that would simply solve the problem. And then what they realized was that you couldn't just attack the law because then when they saw all the parents that were up in arms and resisting the uh, the desegregation um, that, that, you know, that they had fought for from Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, this is now 20 years later, and desegregation is still not happening. And it was because it wasn't, and this is in the North, this is in Boston, this isn't in South Carolina, this isn't in Kentucky. And so what they realized was that we have to understand that it's not just a law that, oh, we changed the law and now everybody's OK. No, that there's the resistance that we experience is because racism is ordinary. It's baked into the, the narrative of our culture and is baked into the overall legal framework, not just a law here or a law there, but in, in general. Number two. And I guess if I could just yeah, quickly sure. just interject. So would they also say that because it's ordinary, it is something that cannot be removed or can it be removed or? Well, yeah. Now that is um, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. There is okay. some folks who would say not only is Difference it ordinary, but it's permanent as well. OK, got you. Uh, okay. I don't think Derek Bell made that statement, but others okay, okay. like Delgado or Stefanczyk may say, yeah, and it's permanent. Okay, so just like divergence of thought within the critical race. This, yeah, which I will about to show you how right. we know that that is true. So in any case, right. the second unpack, one. Unpack, unpack that, brother. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the second one is white over color ascendancy serves important purposes, both psychic and material for the dominant group. So this is the second portion that says, OK, there is not just material benefit that people get from racism to say, okay, I get my kids get to go to a better school. But, and we've seen this, especially when it looks at the issue of poor whites and the, and the role of racism in keep in allowing them to embrace their position. There's a psychic benefit of just saying, I'm not, I might be poor, but at least I'm not black. 
And, and that is a, a benefit, a, I mean, in this ultimate scheme of things, it's a, it's a disease, but in the conscious on, on some level, there's a sense of a purpose that it serves of a hierarchy that it creates and it, it maintains that feels beneficial to those who uh, get to participate in it, even though it sometimes causes them to work against their own self-interest. Number three, social construction thesis holds that race and races are products of social thought and relations. So this is basically another way of saying race is a social construct. And, and um, the fourth is related to that, how a dominant society racializes minority groups at different times in response to shifting needs, such as labor markets also shifts. So the three and four are kind of related. So race is socially constructed. And because it's socially constructed, that means it can change over time. Uh, one of the things you see this is um, at different points, uh, how Asians and Asian Americans were conceptualized both in the United States and in a place like South Africa, where there was actually in South Africa, when there was a system of apartheid, a um, you had to have like an identification card that labels your race. And it was, you were white or black South African or colored or Indian. And they didn't have a category when Japanese people were there. And so they made them literally honorary white people. Like that was their title, honorary white man. And it kind of just showed the, the the plasticity, the flexibility of the term. And, and that even changes as we move forward um, in society now. And as like things like international people come in and it's like how a, how people are considered in that standpoint change. Fifth, Intersectionality and anti-essentialism is the idea that each race has its own origins and ever-evolving history. Um, so, intersectionality is a, um, is a is a basically a word that emphasizes this concept that the multiple uh, that there are multiple layers of how we identify people or define people based on their everything from race, age, gender sexuality, class, um, how they present themselves, all of those things can kind of talk. And so intersectionality says that there are interwoven identities that have a impact on how we are experienced society. So that a poor black woman um, has three different identities that are working against her in terms of how she goes into a place as opposed to a rich black man, even that, that would be kind of a, a different. Uh, and this is one of the places in which there's a lot of concern and angst in Christian uh, circles about critical race theory. Um, and specifically in my interaction with Neil and six uh, voice of color thesis holds that because of different histories and experiences to white counterparts, matters that whites are unlikely to know can be conveyed. So this is, uh, you know, and the concept that of lived experience that says that um, essentially because of one's experience being marginalized, because of one's experience in a racial caste system, that there are um, aspects of being and insights about race um, that are more um, likely to be understood and um, seen and caught 
uh, by people of color than white people. It's kind of that double consciousness piece that Du Bois talked about, or it's an outgrowth of that. So Du Bois talked about how in his book, The Souls of Black Folk, how the Negro is constantly not just looking at himself uh, through his own lens, but also through the white gaze of how he is perceived or she is perceived in society. And that that dual aspect creates almost like you have two operating systems running at the same time. You, you know, you have your own you know, iOS that's happening, but you also have windows that you have to be aware of um, in order to actually see how you're being seen in society. And that creates some unique ways in which in talking about race or talking about um, inequalities, that there's some unique knowledge, not that that knowledge is, well, unattainable per se, although some might argue that, but um, that it is uh, exists in a realm outside of what is self-evident to those who are in the dominant culture. Now, all of those were, so those are the six main kind of concepts as uh, as it's defined by Delgado and Stefanczyk in Introduction to Critical Race Theory. But they also hasten to add in the same section of the book in the intro that even there's disagreement around these basic tenets that they don't expect everybody who identifies as a critical race theorist to necessarily say, yup, 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 to every single thing that there's even, so there's a broad scheme and I can get into, now that definition is much more flexible and pliant than the one that Neil and uh, Shinvi, who I debated with in the Unbelievable Podcast and a lot of other detractors um, would use and what they would emphasize. So I don't know if you want me to get into that next, but that's that's how I, that's what I mean. That's how I define it. Yeah, maybe you can kind of get into that as I ask this kind of this follow-up question. So how has critical race theory entered into the conversation that the church is having right now on justice? And I guess you can kind of expound with that, kind of like how the detractors are kind of (laughs) frame critical race theory. Yep. Um, Let's see. I will first start by just acknowledging the fact that um, for a lot of people like myself, um, you might have been minding your own business uh, online, talking about um, mind my business, sir. <laughs> you know, talking about the issues of uh, the day and seeing some tragedy happen, like Ahmad Arbery, you know, being hunted down like an animal and shot and killed, and said, "Man, this was disgusting that this happened." And then you, you know, hearing the story of the cover up with uh, local, um, you know. Uh, law enforcement and just the local municipality and talk about injustice. And then you see in your comment thread, oh, so I didn't realize you were a critical race theorist. And you're like, what? What is that? You you don't even know what is that exactly the person is accusing you of. And so then you start looking up some things. And that's essentially what happened to me um, on multiple occasions where literally I was just like, now for backdrop, I have a major in Africana studies and in sociology from the University of Pennsylvania. I studied race and culture, like in my discipline and then, you know what I mean? And I still never heard of it. Like, and so I was kind of like, hmm, I'm pretty sure I have a little bit more insights on these issues than the people who are accusing me of something, but let me look this up. And I think that if that applies to you, then there's a, there's a reality that it points to, which is that um, the reason why this enters into the space of the church is because there's a perception 
from the critics of those who talk about wokeness or racial justice or social justice warriors and all those different terms that are kind of now weaponized to uh, criticize people who want to talk about the social implications of the gospel in our world, that there's a tendency to want to have an explanation for why this is coming up. Now, that tendency comes out of a basic fundamental assumption that what they're what the people who are complaining about are seeing is not really real. So the so the first step is that a, it's a move to explain what's happening in our world outside of the the common dominant narrative, which is that we have a race problem in America that is systemic and that is widespread. That can't be the issue for these folks. So they so then they go look and search around for another uh, explanation. And they found, and this is just the latest, because if you just go rewind to 2012, 2013, you know, with, with Trayvon Martin, um, you saw that, oh, there's nothing to see here. He was wearing a hoodie. He was being menacing. And there was a time in which George Zimmerman was literally considered like the goat, like he was like the 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 call celebre. And then his life began to fall apart and his character began to become exposed and everybody distanced themselves from George Zimmerman. But the same people that were lifting him up never said, oh, my bad. He probably did kill that young man for no reason. Um, so then there became Black Lives Matter. And Black Lives Matter comes out, you know, and, you know, especially following Ferguson and Mike Brown. And it's like, oh, this is a, you know, just a uh, diabolical communist Marxist organization. Look at what they say about family. Look at their views on sexuality and gender. So Black Lives Matter is terrible and anathema because of that. And anybody who says Black Lives Matter, anybody who posts anything about Black Lives Matter is 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 being deceived by this anti-Christian organization. But there's a problem with that because not a lot of people avoided even talking about Black Lives Matter and they just wouldn't even bring that up particularly, but they would still talk about race. Okay, so then that doesn't fit well enough. What can we use to actually get those people who aren't saying hashtag BLM, but they are talking about race? Ah, critical race theory. Boom, this is it. This is the thing that has explanatory power. So the, the broad thing that they talk about is that this is a worldview coming off of, of critical theory. So critical theory uh, existed and, and it was kind of like essentially challenging this idea of worldview and, and dominant narratives. And so, and which is part of the reason why critical race theorists use that phrase critical in theory because it already existed. And it was created by a certain uh, Frankfurt school uh, that were Marxist in their political ideology. And so uh, as Shinvi would define it, he's now this is very, the words are very important. On his website, he says, contemporary critical theory views reality through the lens of power, dividing people into oppressed groups and oppressor groups along various axes like race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, and age. Now notice that he says views reality. What he's pointing to there very subtly is he's saying that Christ, uh, critical race theory is a worldview, period. Not simply a methodology, but it's a worldview exclusively. Not that it can be in, in, indicative of a worldview, but that it is a worldview. And that's the rhetorical uh, uh, 
foundational turn that the critics use to say you must reject this. This is incompatible with Christianity because it's using a Marxist dialectic approach to critiquing the world through a lens of power. And that that power basically says that any attempts to uh, to define reality, like creating gender constructs or sexual and they, and they particularly are very um, emphasize sexuality and gender as kind of the 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 red flags to point out and talk. You're talking about race, and they're saying no, 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 no. You have to embrace all of what critical theory says and all of what critical race theory says about intersectionality in order for you to actually uh, fully say that you're a critical race theorist or have a critical view on on, on race. So, so just to, for just if I'm trying to understand this. If you were to adopt this idea that critical race theory is a methodology, then it's a tool you can use to sort of help understand certain aspects of race and 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 and, and things like that in society. But if you if you say it's a, a worldview, then if you take any part of it, you got to take all of it because you're you're now enveloped in a, in, a, in an entire way of exactly. viewing the world and and and, and yeah. living your life. Basically. And critics will say you can't. Because the terms were created by those of the worldview, it's all so like I talk about eating the meat and spitting out the bones. Like that's something that we do with any worldview or any theory that we go, okay, that's that's true. Neil's response to that is the meat is poisonous. That Mm, anything that that is a part of it is is deadly to yourself. So that means all of the anything that you get from Anything and not only that you get, because remember, most of us did not in, get informed by our understanding of race by Derek Bell or Delgado or Kimberly Crenshaw or anybody else. It was from our experience and our understanding. But what they will say, pretty uh, paternalistically, by the way, oh, you just didn't know no better, boo boo. But you were, in fact, you have been corrupted and tainted by this worldview and so when your analysis when you talk about oppressor and oppress that is evidence of the fact that you have already allowed a trojan horse to enter your faith the very nature of it so it doesn't matter the fact that there was already because this was only in 1970s so 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 i'm like well i'm appealing to a christian church tradition a black church, church tradition that is over 200 years older than that don't matter because now we're mm-hmm. talking. So because now if I use, if I even invoke an idea of systemic injustice or systemic racism, they would say that's evidence of the fact that I have bought into the, uh, a worldview that's antagonistic to Christianity. Hmm. First of all, I think that's just uh, crazy that they would think that you can, you know, the whole thing's poisonous, because I think there are many worldviews that um they can buy into without thinking it's poisonous. Of course. Yeah. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I did notice in your um, article that you talked about common grace. Yes. And, um, you know, because I ain't, I ain't that theological student as y'all, you know. So, <laughs> you know, I, um, I found it interesting that you um, said that Christians could, like, engage in, like, secular social theories without feeling like they're, like, against, going against their Christian morals. Can you, like, further explain that? Because I think that 
I know for me, when I first became a Christian, it was like, nah, Jesus all day, that's it. You ain't saying nothing but Jesus. Like, I'm not, I don't want to hear anything. Yeah. Um, I'm telling you, I threw out all my rap albums, everything. It was just like the whole move. But then eventually with time, as I matured, I realized that, of course, like there can be um, truths that don't necessarily say Jesus in it. But some people don't necessarily ascribe to that. And can you explain why that's okay or why Mm -hmm. those can be useful things to inform what we already know about Jesus? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, the reality is we do this all the time in other components, like in other fields. So we can use the term narcissist. Like I, I haven't heard any Christian correct the use of when you say, oh, someone's narcissistic, which means that they have a, uh, a pretty much a mental disorder, a, 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 a psychiatric problem where mm-hmm. they see themselves as the uh, center of the universe and that they're hyper self-centered and arrogant, right? Like, and that's a, a framework that, yeah, people use that term. Well, the interesting thing is that term was coined by Sigmund Freud, uh, the founder of psychoanalysis, who was a passionate atheist who had a lot of views that were contrary to Christianity. And yet uh, the field of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy that he founded, many, not all, but many Christians see value in that field. And I'm one of them. Like, I think that's that now there's a way of saying, okay, there's value in some of the things that he, he, you know, brought out and, and whatnot. And at the same time saying, I don't agree with all of his views spiritually or otherwise. And um, so we do that with psychology. We do that. Even there's a lot of Christian thought theorists about uh, postmodernism that say, yo, there is value in postmodernism's more humble perspective about um, our ability to ascertain knowledge than the previous kind of modernistic perspective that assumed that we could explain and find everything through science and rational thinking, which was really a child of the enlightenment. And we do those in those other categories. And these are theorists who are very much, and for good reason, critiquing postmodernism. And they're still saying there's valuable things. Um, But when it comes to um, this one particular issue of critical race theory, um, it's different. And I I thought about that a lot, like over the last, after after the debate went out and there was a lot of kind of back and forth. And it took me back to, I actually went back and read um, the book uh, from Mark Knoll, Civil War as a Theological Crisis. And the book actually goes back and looks at the way preachers who were pro-slavery and who were pro-abolition um, talked about and certain preached about uh, and taught about slavery in the Bible. And, and it in the book kind of surfaced two themes that began to be very familiar. The first is that one of the post-enlightenment assumptions was this idea of common sense, um, not how we use it in, in terms of just like, oh, that's just, com-. but the common sense as a, epistemological assumption that anything that was in the Bible, a rash of regular person who could read, could understand it simply by opening up the Bible and reading the pages and go, this is what that means. Um, no phenomena, no matter how complex could not be overcome by using this strategy of common sense. What that approach did was it essentially said 
it looked it made most Christians look upon sciences with skepticism or social sciences in particular, because what those social sciences do is say, wait, we need to look at statistics and we need to look at trends and we need to kind of understand our world using tools other than just being able to read and comprehend the Bible and then looking at the world around me. And so that's one thing that happens. The second thing that in uh, the Civil War, so what, so what, so so just to kind of tie that together to help you make sense of that. So when you read the Bible in Leviticus and you see rules about slavery, or you read Paul and slaves obey your masters, the common sense uh, philosophical assumption says, see, there's slavery in the Bible. That must mean the Bible condones slavery. Whereas, so the abolitionist position that said, that took a more nuanced and big picture view of scripture says, well, wait a minute, you're not looking at the fact that in this context of the ancient Near East, these rules were all pointing people to liberation, the Jubilee, the Sabbath, all these were pictures pointing to, 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 to freedom. And ultimately, these major people that God used in the Old Testament, it's very intentional that he uses people who would have been considered servants or slaves from Daniel to Joseph. Like these were two. And so by the time we get to the New Testament, where Jesus opens up the scroll in Luke chapter four and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the captive. And then he says, today, uh, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he's talking about the, the favorable year of the, the year of the Lord's favor. He's saying the Jubilee is being fulfilled in Jesus. So that when I look at the big picture, when I look at Philemon, when I look at all these things, clearly the Bible is pointing to a process that says, I want people free. Who, who the son sets free is free indeed. The problem is opponents of slavery, would go, I mean, opponents of abolition who were supportive of slavery would say, y'all reading stuff into the text. That's not really there. You misunderstanding things. So that was one thing. The second thing was the issue of racial caste system, the narrative of racial hierarchy. And this is a, the other thing that made it impossible for people who were pro-slavery to a believe that God was saying, I want everyone free was because they would hold up the curse of Ham. They would hurt up, even though it was a false teaching or a, a misrepresentation of scripture, they would, they would hold up these different passages that they would use to be, that basically legitimize in their mind that black people were inferior to white people. And that kept them from being able to open up and see. So why does that matter? When you look at the civil rights movement, same thing. Uh, there was opposition in mainstream white churches toward integration, which they said was of the devil and was communist, um, as well as uh, full equality. So now we go to 2020. In 2020, look, lo and behold, here we are again in a place where we say, okay, wait, the world is actually more complicated than simply can we all just get along relationships between each other? That there's actually systems and structures in place that when you look at housing, when you look at education, when you look at criminal justice that are have been designed to uh, a lot uh, benefits to white people and disadvantages to people of color. And so, but that's not just as simple as somebody going to a courtroom and is innocent or guilty. That's something more complicated than that. Once again, common sense says, nope, I don't see that in the scripture. Nope, I don't see that there. This is, is really as simple as me having a good relationship with you. And if we want to change the world, we just need to see people come to Jesus. That's that legacy of that. And then on top of that, you bring into it. And, and this is, and I'm not saying that everyone 
who is concerned about critical race theories or racist. But what I am saying is that the narrative and the belief that these racial inequalities that we see, these disparities that we see are more the result of problems in culture within the black community, fatherlessness, uh, a lack of people wanting to try. Just today, Jared Kushner um, said on in the news that um, tr- Donald Trump, is, his father had the right policies. The problem is people have to want success in the black community. So again, the idea is Crazy. You're, the, the, the main problem is you don't want it enough. That Crazy. is a trope that gives you back to a racial hierarchy ideology that says there's something else that has explanatory power other than some other complex theory. And that's how the two of those things combine. Are you tracking with me there, uh, Verlene? Yeah, 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 for sure. I think my next question is like, where do you think their common sense worldview comes from? Who, what's informing that? Yeah. Well, that's what we know very uh, clearly that, it's the it's a post enlightenment hyper rationalistic hyper individualistic uh view on uh on reality and therefore of the faith and so there's a built in suspicion and rejection of anything that has to do with systems or structures or social inequality because the uh, in the era of the Enlightenment was very boiled down to the individual. I think, therefore, I am was the mm-hmm. idea. And so, if if it's boiled down to the individual, then nothing else matters. Now, the ironic thing is, it doesn't take much to look in the scriptures and see that is a foreign ideology to the way that the scriptures deal with humanity. Yes, there is a sense in which God made us in his image. And so we have individual worth and value, but there's also the huge narrative of how he deals with us as a collective and the fact that those things matter. I mean, everything from the federal headship of Adam and Christ to uh, the the dealings with Achan in the camp when he had sinned in the camp and stole something from, and a whole group of Israelites lost the battle because of it to Nehemiah and, and Daniel interceding and confessing the sins that they weren't even alive to commit, but that was happened under their watch. That there's a there's a there's a South African where um uh you know um Mbutu that that I heard a lot in South Africa. Uh, it's a Hosa word, I believe. And Mbutu has to do with this aspect of I am because we are. Is there's a, a communal uh interdependence that we have. And that is very much different than a Western European way of looking at the world that says, nope, 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 I am because I am. I think therefore I am. And um, and so I think the combination of those things cause people to look at themselves as I'm coming at this from a common sense, simple standpoint. I don't need help to understand the Bible. I just need to be able to read it or understand. And I don't need anything other than the Bible to understand the world, which is not even the way that the Bible Dealt because do you realize in the Bible Paul quotes uh, other you know second you know poets that were not Christian that were uh, you know pagans and and even in the uh, Old Testament there's references to to other literature um, that is that is you know commandeered and 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 reframed in a in a biblical context so um, so that's not the 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 position of the Bible but it's the position of people who say 
that they believe the Bible. And that is something that we've seen ever since the abolition, pro-slavery debate, civil rights movement, et cetera. Uh, Just remembering the debate that you had with Neil, one of the things he kept emphasizing was, okay, and and you've said it uh, here uh, today was, okay, well, if you take this part, you have to take all of it, right? Because Neil was, he did say like, you know, look, there's some things you know, that critical race theory got right. You know, he said in debate, like race in America, I'm surprised he even conceded that much, but he said it was, was right. But then there are these things with sexuality. There are these right. things with gender um, right. that, that that are just uh, anti-Christian. And, and, and even if you read something that, like the Black Lives Matter statement, um, mm-hmm. some of it comes across as anti-family. I've heard some people say it's 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 like anti man like male you know it's it's all these things that and and it seems like it's an attack on the family right Right. that god sort of put together and and so i think you know christians can rightly agree that biblically we would have to reject a lot of that stuff so i guess the the question is so i agree with you that i think this is you know a setup to sort of attack from a deeper motive of not wanting to kind of address a lot of these racial issues. Mm -hmm. But what if you were saying, you know what, man, I'm looking at this critical race theory stuff and some of this stuff is kind of scary to me. Mm -hmm. How do I like, you know, is there a, is there a chance that we could kind of get caught up in embracing views that are unbiblical? Are there? Yeah. That's a great question. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or like, is there something that we should worry about? You right. know, like, or or is this whole thing sort of overblown? Like, right. You know, how how would you? Yeah. Well, so I think first of all, as I dug more into this and really thought about it, um, I think that what we really have is lowercase critical race theories, and that, um, and the reason why I put it that way is when you see how pliant, flexible, and broad the concepts are, um, you realize that there's a lot of specific ways in which this plays itself out that are not um, simply uh, one static thing. Like that was that's what Neil and I were debating about because he wants to make it more broad. And again, I'm quoting the founders of the theory and going, this is not what they said was essential to it. So it's not like the theory of relativity or whatever, you know, you know, Newton's theory of like gravity. It's not like that um, in the scientific realm. And when you get into the social sciences, it's much more broad and nuanced. Um, and the reason why that's important is because, you know, as I said in the, um, in the article, uh, not every person who critiques race is a critical race theorist, but everyone that is a critical race theorist critiques race. But to those looking on the outside, especially who don't have a lot of experience with the idea of critiquing race, they look at everybody who does as a critical race theorist, even though there's a wide range of points of entry of what people believe in the midst of that. So I wanted to say that first. So so really what we're talking about is critical race theories, not just this one. I mean, because even... Uh, Neil in the in the debate he he used the definition from the, the part uh, education field whereas critical race theory began in the legal studies and he did that very intentionally because some of the more 
what we would say radical versions of it have ap- appeared more in that discipline than in the legal studies discipline and where it started, or at least from the start. And so I think it's important to know that, um, that there's, it's, so I'm being painted. So if someone asked me on Twitter, well, why, if you don't agree with some of the things that are, that Neil is saying are foundational to it, then why do you still identify as a critical race theorist? I said, I don't. Y'all keep calling me one when I bring up race. That's why I'm having this conversation. <laughs> like, y'all don't know really this up. Not me. <laughs> like, so like so I'm just, facts, I'm just out here trying to live right and and tell people that Jesus cares about their injustice. <laughs> and y'all going yeah. up say, oh, you only say that because you're involved with critical race theory. So, um, so yeah. So I think that's a broad, that's an important kind of first point. Um, now beyond that, some of the things that. I have even in the article critical uh, essay I wrote critical grace theory is that there are I mean aspects where I go no nah, I don't I don't think that that does cohere to a Christian worldview so um, in that aspect of like oppressive narratives some would say the narrative that gender is uh, ideally binary or is expressed in a, in a certain male and female way that there's two genders some would argue that that was oppressive as a ideology and that the only way to look at gender is to look at it as fluid and people kind of can kind of choose their own uh expression of that um and that that's the best way for humans to live not just that they can but that they ought to um and uh, critics will say, well, you have to accept that view in order to essentially critique race. And I go, no, you don't. Um, you, I think there's a, a way of looking at um, the Bible and, and, and it looking at its ideal for humanity and saying that this is an ideal. Now, I think one of the other problems that happens with this is oftentimes the real complex and tragic issue of oppression that people experience because of gender, because of sexuality, um, seem to be like people, Christians feel like if they acknowledge that, then they are acknowledging that they have to change what the Bible says about sexuality or gender. I'm like, that's not true. I mean, the reality is, regardless of your egalitarian or, or complementarian, you can agree that women are experience oppression in our society. Like, that's just facts. Like, and that has been facts. Um, when we talk about sexual assault, when we talk about who believes people who experience sexual assault, when we talk about income inequalities and and who gets, you know, and I, I see it, you know, in my own, you know, family and, and, and whatnot. So I know that that's real. Um, same thing with uh, the LGBT uh, plus community that I, I, you know, it would be foolish and, and wrong to deny the fact that people experience, um, you know, uh, have experienced violence, have experienced, uh, you know, being um, overlooked and oppressed for jobs uh, in various ways because of those things and that that's wrong. Now, what does it look like was a Christian way of um, balancing this aspect of religious freedom or, you know, and, you know, people's uh, ability to be who they are, who they feel like is their best way of being, even when it disagrees with mine. Those are um, important conversations to have. But unfortunately, a lot of Christians feel like scared, get scared away from those conversations because it involves, again, nuance and a recognition of power that people want to pretend that doesn't exist. 
Um, and so I, I maintain, nah, we got to have a conversation about it all and be re- willing to recognize and empathize with people's pain. Even if I don't necessarily agree with the choices people make, that doesn't mean that I can't, that I shouldn't uh, defend their humanity when it's being challenged. Um, but so specifically, there are always, now this is what is true. Cause I said, it, I'm using critical race theory as a methodology. However, there is a worldview component that people can often get caught up into where they began to define their reality based upon uh, these social theories as opposed to based upon the biblical uh, vision. Now that's, you know, that's possible to happen. I'm not saying that that's not possible to happen. I've seen it happen. I, I, I get concerned about that happening. I think that we ultimately need to allow the word of God to define reality and wrestle with that more than the culture. And I do see that that is happening, but I also recognize what Barna, what Pew Research and everybody else is telling us that the, our country is becoming more secular. And so I don't necessarily... It's not, I think a lot of times what, what some Christians believe is if we just tell people, or if people just reject critical race theory, that somehow they're not going to still be in a secular society that's pulling them in a more secular direction. But the reality is that's not true, that even if it's not this, it's something else. And so I'm more interested in helping us be more equipped and knowing how to think critically about everything that comes before us, and especially about the issue of justice. I, the, the sad thing is that Christians are pushing against the very thing that if we were to align ourselves to God's vision and heart for justice, people would be less prone to feeling like they have to leave the church in order to express all of who they are and what they see. And unfortunately, a lot of folks are stuck on stupid and doubling down on the aspect, nah, this ain't got nothing to do with the Bible. And it's like, that, and you think that's going to help, you know what I mean? Ignoring all of what God has to say in his word. That's a shame, but that's what folks are doing. So. Yeah. It's crazy that you, you brought that up. You know, part of, my whole thinking on this is, you know, whenever I see people who are critiquing critical race theory and coming against Christians, whenever they, you know, talk about justice and accusing them of being critical race theory theorists, I always am just blown away because I'm like, if, if the church, which has a rich history of deep theological, philosophical contemplation had developed ethically systems of justice wow. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, we've had some of the greatest minds that the world has ever seen. And if we took the time to develop that side of our thinking, we would have from the outset rejected things like slavery, rejected white supremacy, rejected the way that we were treating women and, and or still I am in many ways treating women. And, 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 and then there would have never been a need for critical race theory. It yep. would never it would never have formed. Right. The, and, and, and that's so that's one part of the, the issue. And then the, the second part of the issue that frustrates me is if and then I go, OK, so fine. Let's say I reject critical race theory. Now what? What are you proposing? We we do like there's no like, OK, you know what? Let's reject critical race theory because I've been thinking about some ways we could talk about justice mm. from a biblical worldview. Yeah. I've been thinking about way, you know, we put our heads together theologically. We're developing these systems. So so it's like one, you, you fail to realize why this is here in the first place. And then two, you don't 
you do not offer any biblical alternative to talking about justice. And then you wonder why people, like you said, Rasul, are looking, they're looking out into the world. They're seeing this injustice. They have no idea, a way of thinking about it because the church neglected, still to this day, neglects to talk about this in any meaningful, theological, philosophical way where Christians can get God's heart on this. And then they wonder why this is here. And then, you know, they, 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 like you say, they act like if we just stop talking about it, it's going to go away. So I don't know, bro. It's, it's frustrating. Yeah. I, I, I call it um, what the church has often been guilty of is having an uncritical race theory. That's actually the bigger problem. Uh, there's a perspective that isn't critical on race. It's just kind of assumed to be a category that we look at and go, Hey, this is just like gender. This is just like class. It just exists. It's like, no, this is different. This is different than ethnicity. You can look at somebody's ethnicity and say, ethnicity is my heritage, my language, my culture are all related to this expression of ethnicity, which in the Greek ethnos, we see that in the Bible. Race was a social construct created to oppress people and allocate resources and benefits, whether they be emotional or material, um, to people based on how light their skin was and in, in proximity to whiteness. And when you don't have a robust theory about that, then you have nothing to say and offer it to a conversation that has been long overdue of being had and that people are looking for answers to have. And you're absolutely right with to say, okay, so what, so what are you saying? That there's nothing wrong that's going on? And they would say, yeah, that's it. Uh, you know, we need to change a few hearts. Facts, but uh, man, but so... but that but there's nothing to see here, and um and you only think that there's something to see here that there's systemic oppression because that's what critical race theorists tell you to think. That's how that's their reaction, and they don't realize. Um, one last thing I want to add on that is divided by faith. The book divided by faith really exposed this. It's almost twenty years. It's over twenty years old now. It was in 1999 it was written, but these two Christian sociologists, uh, Christian Smith and Michael Emerson, they wrote this book to understand how black and white Christians who believe the same things had different, uh, fundamentally different perspectives on the issue of the significance of race in our country. And what they observed was that white evangelical Christianity lacked what they call the cultural toolkit in order to evaluate uh, and see race that essentially their one kind of rock in the sling was looking at it through the lens of, um, of individual heart change, which is why the term racial reconciliation and the concept of, hey, let's get, you know, all get along is what has dominated conversations. Diversity, quote unquote, is what dominates the conversation in white spaces. Whereas in black spaces, there's always been a recognition that, um, there has been institutional and systemic uh, racism that exists um, in every facet of our society. Um, and, and, but, and that's built into, that's what I, in answer to uh, Varlene's question, where I was talking about that, that kind of epistemological assumption of common sense and uh, in hyper-individualism works against seeing institutions um, in most cases. But notice that evangelical Christians 
see institutions very clearly when it comes to issues like abortion, when it comes to issues like same-sex marriage, then it's like, oh, it's on and popping. We got to, we got to load the courts. We got to, you know, change the court. Like then there's a, and I would say then they're misusing it in those contexts or they're overinflating the, the, you know, the value of those things and underinflating the cultural conversation that needs to happen. But nevertheless, they see it. But when it comes to race, it ain't there. It's just gone. It just doesn't exist. And so that's part of the problem. I noticed that um, also in the article, you know, you talked about power and unmet power and um, how that plays into how Christians look at critical race theory. And I thought that was a really good point that you made um, and even citing how you noticed your unmet power with being a male. Um, and you kind of touched on it when you was talking about how you see oppression with women. Um, if you could get into that a little bit more, because I think that like people don't think they got power. You know, when they got the power, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. And you know yeah. what I noticed? And this is why I brought that up. And that was an interesting moment when I put that in there because, and Neil brought it up in the debate and almost this kind of like, oh, gotcha kind of way. See, you talking about gender now too. And it was like, yes, because it's true. Um, but the reality was um, the, as I began to like mature and grow, I grew up around my, I was raised by a single mom around super strong black women, like my grandma. Hey, hey, hey. Shout out to black women. Shout out to black women. I wouldn't be who I was without black women. Um, Everything from my mom deciding not to abort me when her doctor told told her to um, because she was very sick um, to all the sacrifices that she made and others made. But one of the things that was a blind spot for me because I was raised by such strong black women who... I was like in ultimately intimidated by was a realization that when I became a leader myself, that that there were aspects of my own uh, bias and um, way of being that gave me a certain aspect of, of power that uh, that didn't to women. And it took me in having real conversations with my wife and those who I was leading in order to be like, wow, I see that. And, and it was funny. I remember thinking, I know how white people feel now. Like this, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a shame attached to it when you realize that there are aspects of who you are that you got in the room or you got listened to in a way that other people didn't. And that, that you didn't just get there based on your own, like the only thing that was happening wasn't just your unique giftedness. There were some other things that gave you extra bounce that when you, and, and that you didn't know it. And it's the not knowing it that just makes you feel shame, makes you feel guilt. And uh, I was felt terrible about it. And you have a moment, there's a key moment where you go, do I deny it to make myself feel better? Or do I acknowledge it and just recognize that I have limitations that I don't recognize? And fortunately, by the grace of God, I realized I want to be a whole person. So I need to acknowledge that which I I didn't see before. And I need to position myself to uh, leverage the abilities that I have for other people to platform other people as much as I can. So, for example, in my podcast, I made sure in season one that we had as much gender balance as possible. But that was something I realized I had to intentionally do because on a natural front, I wouldn't, I would have just, I, with my first list was like all dudes almost. And it was like, wait, I need to have these other voices present in order for me to present in that way. And so I bring all that up to say that 
um, yeah, there are aspects of power that I began to realize and that really Christians don't often talk about. And it's related in part because, see, power oftentimes is a social reality, a phenomenon that exists beyond just one and people. Now, obviously, with a parent and a child or adults and children, that there's a dynamic. But generally speaking, it's a there are social categories that 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 reveal that in a way that individualism doesn't. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's such a blind spot. And on top of that, now I'm gonna get real, real. Because to get real, real, the other thing is that all theology is contextual. And when you come from an evangelical space, that has, that theology has been written by those who are in positions of power. So it's no coincidence that power is not something that is mapped or pointed out to because they never needed to point it out. Whereas when you look at theologies that come from the margins, like women, like, you know, womanist theology or African black theology or liberation theology, like these other places, it's mapped on there and they come into the Bible seeing these themes, not that they weren't there in the first place, but the, 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 the people that we were reading didn't map it because they didn't need to map it. It wasn't, it wasn't there. The system worked for them. So they didn't have to have a question within themselves. Theology is asking questions about God that come up as a result of your social context. And unfortunately, for so many years, I thought that the theology that I had uh, been exposed to was just people objectively looking in the Bible and just saying, okay, what does this mean? That's good. Uh, and, and not the fact that even the best St. Augustine, you know, Luther, Calvin, like any, any of these people, yeah, they are very much, the questions that they ask are, are, are very much informed by their social location. Not to say that they're not the finding The entire truth. Protestant movement was a, a right. reaction of what the Catholic Church is doing. They had exactly. to ask That's questions. Why it, the, <laughs> Luther five, founded an entire movement because uh-huh. he asked questions Dude, about his own justification and his own, all the issues that he had to deal with in his day was why he asked some questions. When I found out that Tulip was a response to an Armenian doctrine like that, like it was pound for pound, Facts. point for point, a yeah. reaction to what, like, they, what, I was like, oh, really? I just thought this was like, I closed, you know, open up the Bible and revelation just... and just closed it. It's like, bam, <laughs> this is what I found. That That's when you realize, wait, so there's an active work. And again, that doesn't mean we throw everything away, but what it does mean is that I make space and room for other dynamics. And one of the things that is clearly there is power. I mean, you see it from, you know, Cain killing Abel, you know, Adam blaming Eve, uh, the Pharaoh, you know, uh, I mean, just put enslaving the Israelites, Abraham with Hagar and Sarah, like you see it all the way there. But when you're on the margins, you see those things clearer than not. And, and so I think power is a key component. And that's why people don't see race because they haven't had to. And so they think that we are injecting foreign ideas into the Bible. The reality is we're injecting foreign ideas into their understood hermeneutic. But the problem is they're seeing their hermeneutic as the same as biblical teaching and that there's no room to expose aspects that were missing or lacking or just weren't there. But we do this with other things. Like we had to create a theology of technology when we started to see screens dominate. What does it mean for us to live in a world in which we, how do we have rhythms of Sabbath? How do we do that? Like there's always been responses 
the how do these how do we now live in light of a pandemic? What does it mean to do church in this season? Right, like we have to ask those questions afresh that no one that people in our generation hadn't asked before, and the, those are the very things that when you're blind to your own social location or resistant to acknowledging that there are blind spots that you have that you're, you're unwilling to do. And that's why, even when I, even if I disagree with somebody's theological position or sociological position, I still want to listen to them to see what I might be missing that I uh, was not able to grasp because of my aspect of power. That's so, so yeah, that's my long version to that question, Berlin, but it's a very important. All I got to say is my, 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 <laughs> The Holy Ghost, if y'all was seeing me, my head was swaying. I was about to go and run around the room, do like two dances. Like, yep, he gets it. So he was preaching to my soul. Everything you said resonated, and I totally agree with that. And that's why I asked that question, because I think that, again, people fail to, fail to see the dynamics of power and how that informs what they see in the Bible and how they see the world, period. So let me ask you something. Let me ask you something, because I think this actually kind of points to the point. What was it about that particular point that resonated with you? Why did you why did that emotionally resonate? Because I did see you getting into it and swaying. Why does that why is that important to you? Why does it matter? I mean, when you see like just hearing you talk about your male privilege and noticing that it made it personal. Right. And for me, I, I serve a relational guy who knows me, sees me and knows Varlene. And so when somebody's able to kind of connect with me on that personal level and noticing and being transparent like you were with that, it just that to me is how you get to the road of actually consoling the situation mm. when you are self-aware of what is going on with you that you didn't know. Mm. Mm. That's very important to consoling, right? Because I, I I listen to Mark Charles too, so they don't they don't no no reconciliation <laughs> here. It's consi- like conciliation, yeah. right. right? And so, in order for that to happen, you have to actually admit, yo, I know. Oh shoot, you know. And so that that really makes a difference in how we're going to walk on this road together. To, to, to unity and harmony and to mm-hmm. shalom. Like, there's just mm-hmm. no way. And so seeing that really, like like I said, it resonated with me because it was just like, oh, this is a real person mm-hmm. who actually gets it. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to hear or, you know, I don't want to, like that whole like theological talk. No, like when you actually give me a personal account, I'm like, oh, okay. So you, you see the Jesus of the Bible who actually came down to be with, the people like you know what I mean like he had all these words he was actually here with these people yeah so that's why it really resonated with me yeah and what you're talking about and one I I know from implied in that or at least I read implied in that is you've seen men miss that even as they try to talk about other issues of inequality and justice am I right yeah (laughs) yeah for sure and and that is part of so that I, I wanted to draw that out because that's an example of the work that we're, that we, why we, it's so important. I'm so glad that you, you, you asked the question and you brought that out because that's why we have to learn from each other. That's why we have to um, hear from other voices and perspectives because things that are pressing and significant in light of, because I, I can tell Varlene, you got stories to go with that. You got, you got your own life experiences to go with that. And, um, and that's, 
And that's why it, it, it's, it resonates with you. And, uh, and I think the same is true when we talk about this issue of race. And, and it brings up right. what Carl Ellis talks about. Dr. Carl Ellis, shout out, um, is the side A and side B of the gospel. Side A, he talks about, is the epistemological concerns, the ideas, right. the, the theology. Side B is the ethical concerns. What are we going to do about it? And what Ellis brings out is by nature, those who are in the dominant culture are focused more on the epistemology, the ideas, and those who are in the marginalized are more interested in the ethics. Why? Because I can be all fat and cozy and comfortable and and wax eloquent about inerrancy and infallibility and all of these things and stay there as a theory about the nature of God and his holiness and his righteousness and what I need to do to please him. And I can just stay there in like ideological land and not ever have to be pressed with what do I do in a broken world that has slavery there? What do I do in a broken world that has marginalization where people are mistreated? And, and that's the very thing that those on the margins are coming to God and asking about because that's their situation. They need a word for right now, not just, you know, these, these, these out there. And again, these issues are important. Doctrine is important, but there's also this concern about like, what do we do about these things? What does God have to say about the injustice that I find around me? And that's the part that I think is a, another piece behind why a lot of people find it more important to criticize critical race theory than they do to talk about racism. Like, this is why this ain't, and the ironic thing is most, I don't really know too many black, like black Christians that are even talking about critical race theory, but I know a whole lot of people that are talking about what we're going to do about the fact that yet again, some, you know, a, a, another Breonna Taylor just happened. What are we going to do about that? Like, what, what's that? What, you know, what does God have to say about that? And, uh, and that's the difference between having simply an epistemological uh, question, which we need to have, but also combining that with an ethical, which we also need to have. And, uh, and you got to keep those both together. It's good stuff, Rasul. I just have one uh, final question because um, I want to kind of just give our listeners who, you know, as much as we, uh, the church sometimes, I, you know, I look in and I, you know, it just seems like there's just all this just division and things yeah. that is frustrating. And it's, it's hard for us to you know, sometimes just navigate these waters of, you know, we still have brothers and sisters in the faith who are in Christ, yeah. who severely disagree with us. Right. And, you know, and, 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 I, and I saw that you, you kind of brought us up in the debate. There were either there even been some leaders calling for people who may hold our position, you know, uh, the, the woke crowd, the social justice warriors, the critical race theorists, however you want to define them as people who need to be anathema, they need to be kicked out, they're heretics, we need to cut off fellowship yeah. because they're introducing all of this unbiblical sort of views of justice into the church. And so, you know, we're in this context and we're going to have these conversations. Um, how are we to navigate this? You know, yeah. what is your wisdom? Should we just not even listen? Should we just say, you know, critical race theory, we're not even going to just accept that term. Anytime, anytime somebody brings that up, we're just going to just, we don't do that. Are we to defend that term? Are we just not even, you know, how would you say we just need to just navigate these waters that we're in right now? Yeah, that's a big question. And that's the operative question. And I, honestly, uh, Brian, I struggle with the answer to that question daily. 
Mm. Um, when I, I wrote that essay, um, while I was writing that essay, because I just got tired of asking people bringing up this side issue when I'm talking about race. And I just wanted to say something definitive to say, okay, I've researched this. This is my, you know, uh, reasoned, uh, approach to responding to it. Um, and I remember while I was writing it, thinking, this is so stupid that I have in I'm writing about critical race theory when I want to be talking about what are we going to actually do to solve the brokenness around us? And um, and there was a part of me that felt like, am I, um, am I compromised by being in a white world so much that I care about this? And, um, and I struggle with that and I still struggle with it. But I, I'll say this that I felt like for my own sense of sanity, I can't unring the bell. And the reality is I've been shaped in these different contexts. I'm uh, in a predominantly white seminary right now that, Hey, shout out RTS <laughs> full tuition, full ride. But, um, but it, these things matter to me to, to have a, a given answer, but I know that they also matter to so many people who are wanting to give an answer, but maybe don't know how to do it. And so, and what I've received since then has proven that that really was, uh, I can't tell you how many people were like, yo, thank you so much. I've been having the same questions brought to me and I didn't know how to respond. And it just gave them, it helped encourage people in the faith. And so, but that's because that's my social location. If that's not your social location and you don't have to care about those things or you don't feel compelled to, don't, don't, just don't even worry about it. Just, just keep doing what you do you know, loving your melanated self and representing your melanated world where you are and and just do you. Um, You don't have to. Uh, I am one that believes that uh, unity in the body of Christ is something that I am in some way uniquely positioned to be an advocate for in some explicit ways um, based on my background. And so I'm trying to leverage that um, but I also want to pick my spots. And I also do lament the fact that some of these arguments that we're getting into are just inconsequential to most people that I care about. And that are, and I don't want to get so lost in the debates that um, I lose sight of that. And so um, I think it's a very personal um, uh, decision and calling. Um, I think for some of us, it's better if we do d- unplug from caring about that. And not even, there was a time a few days after the debate where I was really going back and forth with folks and it was dominating my thoughts and I just stopped and I just stopped interacting online and just kind of unplugged and and I had to pray and I had to kind of recenter myself in my, in the story that God was telling in and through my life. And it was really good to do that and just say, you know what, I, I don't need to care that much. And so, um, so yeah, I think that that's a, a tough, it's a big question, and it's one that I think we have to wrestle with day to day. Where I'm not so cynical that I uh, deny any opportunity or responsibility to helping my fellow brother or sister in Christ see something that they don't see, but that I also don't become so wrapped up and invested in the pathology of white supremacy that I feel like I have to defend my very existence. And, 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 and that's a, a line that we all have to kind of walk. Um, and, and each person has to make decisions day to day about what it looks like to walk that line. Um, 
And so that's my best, my, but hopefully by bringing up the fact that there is a line can help people give a category for what they're experiencing and feeling and help you to go, okay, not today. But then on another point, be like, I got time today. And so I'm going to go there and I'm going to, you know, and then another day I ain't got time. So I'm done. Okay. Boom. And I think that's how we have to do it in order to maintain our own sense of health, you know, and our personal sense of um, vision and direction with the Lord. Man, that's so good, brother. Um, Rasul, thank you so much, brother. Rasul, the messenger, ladies and gentlemen, came, dropped all the bars. Um, and I think you've really helped us kind of think through this issue um, and, and I think helped us to advance the conversation uh, more when we are in these conversations. Uh, that's going to do it for us um, on today's episode. Um, I am Brian, the Theological Giant, alongside Varlene Wild Thornberry. Thank you so much, guys, for listening to another episode of the City Image Podcast. We will see you in the next one. City Image.